Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Scripture is, does not only exist to impart information to us and to illuminate our intellects. Scripture exists to reshape us and to make us Christians. And sometimes reshaping people is best done by enlightening their minds. But sometimes the best thing to reshape people is something else. Back when Jeremy Holmes, who is today theology professor at Wyoming Catholic College, was studying Scripture through the lenses of narrative criticism and theological exegesis, he needed a master to show him how the word used words. So he went to St. Matthew the Evangelist. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, the conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share the conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Our guest today is Professor Jeremy Holmes of Wyoming Catholic College, where he's Associate Professor of Theology. When he was a kid in Arkansas, his family attended a little Presbyterian church. As a teenager, when he wasn't practicing piano and magic tricks, he found himself searching for God and his grace. And sharing his father's love of scripture, he found his way to Thomas Aquinas College, where he absorbed Catholic culture and met his future wife. Then in pursuit of a doctoral degree in biblical studies, he lived for two years in a medieval Carthusian monastery in Austria, then seven years in Milwaukee, two more in Florida, before finally finding his home in Lander, Wyoming. Now he teaches at Wyoming Catholic College in the Wind River Mountains, and he and his wife have eight children and homeschool them. Professor Holmes's book, Cur Deus Verba, asks, what did God seek to accomplish by making the Bible? And his dissertation was about the formulaic citations in Matthew's vision. I'll be asking him about both. So a very, very interesting gentleman. Welcome, Dr. Holmes. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you have a joke to share with our audience? I do. Uh, I am very fond of puns. So I want to tell you and our listeners today about the greatest pun ever told by the greatest pun artist. He would travel from large town to large town. He would boldly claim that he could make a pun on any subject. Hmm. And he would invite the audience to, to hit him with any subject that came into their heads. And he would immediately on the spot have a pun for them. And he traveled Europe with this act, never failing. And as he succeeded uh, again and again in the most unlikely circumstances, of course, his fame grew. And of course, as his fame grew, uh, jealousies grew. Other mm-hmm. traveling acts uh, did not appreciate the way he could come into town and take the crowds away from their juggling or fire breathing or whatever they were offering. So they took advantage of, well, the fact that it was the Middle Ages and to do anything in public was to take a risk, Mm -hmm. uh, to put yourself uh, out there. So 
they they sent a plant, and their the, the enemy plant stepped forward and cried out, "Make a pun on the king!" Uh oh. A hush goes over the audience, right? Because they all know what's involved, what's going on. If he doesn't make the pun, he fails his challenge uh, and ruins his reputation. But if he makes the pun, it'll get back to the king and he could end up in the tower. Uh, the king, he says, meditatively. And his friends in the audience are sweating on his behalf, but he looks as cool as a cucumber. The king, he repeats thoughtfully. The audience can't take the tension. A a murmur starts to break out. He raises his hand for silence. The king is not a subject. Next. (laughs) Good save. Well done. And the guy had a very expert solution. And I think it reveals a little bit about the vulnerability of telling true things to powerful people and also about the magical role of the court jester, but also about free speech and lack thereof and many, many topics. So um, that's, that's an excellent, I'm sure I will be uh, repeating it. Uh, Would you tell us a bit about how you became a professor of theology out in Wyoming and maybe a bit about your time in Austria and your dissertation and how you got to where you are today? For sure. Right. So as you've already mentioned, uh, when I was a child, I was, I I was not a, Catholic. My earliest memories are of a Presbyterian church in Lone Oak, Arkansas. Um, my father actually went to college as an atheist, but uh, through his uh, beautiful marriage uh, to to my mother, he um, he found God and eventually Christ, uh, kneeling down in a pea field one day to 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 accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and. Being of an intellectual bent, he read a lot about his faith, and he began to see that the the questions he was asking all led back toward Rome. Uh, my mother was by no means ready for this. She she grew up in a very anti-Catholic environment. Uh, what year is this? Would you say? Uh, this would be the very late seventies. Okay. And. Um, uh, eventually, through their their work with the pro life movement, um, my mother was brought into contact with Catholics, real live breathing Catholics, who turned out to be normal Christians, right? Who have you know one head on their shoulders and you know believe in mm-hmm. that that they are saved by the, the the passion of our Lord. And this gentle breaking down of some prejudice really set the stage. And she, eventually, she told. Uh, my father, after, she, after a year, she had been journaling. He's talking about it again. You know, <laughs> he finally told him I'm ready. You know, my, my family uh, entered the church in the mid eighties and um, my own entry was very much following my parents at that point. Uh, within a year, however, we were, um, my father abandoned his legal career temporarily, went to Thomas Aquinas college in California and was a, a tutor there for a couple of years. And that immersed us in a, community of people, you know, who were deeply Catholic and, um, seemed to, it seemed like they were the pros, you know, we're reading things out of book. They know all the moves. They, they, they all know the, the, the rosary, the, the, the Angelus, all the different things that Catholics just seem to know. And, um, after a couple of years we came back and, you know, having been, having been immersed in that environment with many seeds sown that I was unaware of, um, 
then I really think in my teenage years, you know, God just kind of reached out and grabbed me, you know, by the scruff of the neck and gave me a few shakes, you know, to, made me aware that there were, there were ways I was living that were not good to live. And, and, and then I would, you know, I'd try to try to just change myself and become aware. I can't, I can't, I don't have the power by myself to do what I know I should do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there, you know, I developed a, um, um, a deep relationship with our Lord in the Eucharist, you know, and, um, and it developed a, a devotion to the liturgy of the hours. And, uh, and through my father, uh, as uh, you've already read this in my bio, um, uh, also absorbed a deep love of scripture, which of course, you know, resonated with our, our Protestant background. So I, I became, I became enamored intellectually of the faith at that point. Um, and when it came time for college, I headed back to Thomas Aquinas college for more of what I had seen there. And was fortunate enough to meet my my future wife, who was a, a member of a multi generational Catholic family. You know, I sort of like I'm an amateur. I'm going to marry into the uh, uh, to the to the deep background. And her brother put us onto this obscure, teensy tiny Masters of Theology program in Austria, the International wow. Theological Institute. I, and when I say teensy tiny, I mean they may, they probably had fifty people. I, there, I, I received a really wonderful sort of great book style foundation in the principles of theology. We were reading the Church Fathers. We were reading the Aquinas' Summa. We were reading magisterial texts. It was all original source material. It was a phenomenal two-year experience. And I headed off from there to pursue my original love, which was scripture. I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee. And hey, I, in some ways, I think I was not ready for what I was going to encounter there. I, um, I did not realize at the time the extent to which modern biblical studies was kind of kicked off by people who were not excited about Christianity. So you have Thomas Hobbes, who's, who wants to leave the state as the only authority standing. You have um, Benedict Spinoza, who just wants people to stop fighting about religion. Uh, you, they, they sort of set the agenda and the questions to be answered, which people pursued for a couple of hundred years. Uh, around that time, though, I guess this was an interesting moment to be going to graduate school because the historical critical project was showing its age, right? It had started, it kept circling around the same questions quite a bit. I was very fortunate when I showed up, I was assigned um, uh, as a TA to um, a wonderful Jesuit, uh, uh, William Kurtz, and, you know, good Father Bill, as everyone called him. And um, he was in really into what they called narrative criticism, um, which was just basically a phenomenon where uh, people who used to work in literature departments studying great fiction or great literature moved over and started applying those same tools to scripture. It was really exciting for, for a long time. This kicked off, I guess, mid eighties. And, um, the, the, the interesting thing about historical criticism was that it's very focused on finding the sources and the editing process that led to the current text we have, which means they're looking for those places where you can still see the kind of the, the places where two different source texts were glued together. Mm-hmm. And if you have a really good editor, you can't see the seams. Yeah. He's, he's going to, he's going to mask them perfectly. So, so historical criticism is looking for places where there was some kind of lack of skill shown in putting this text together. So we, so that we can get behind the scenes, right? Some way in which there's an inconsistency or a verbal slip. 
We're, and it's also a game of uh, language study, right? Uh, philology. And how can we, 2,000 years later, even try to take a guess, take a shot? Oh, this is slightly different this way, slightly different that way. Yeah. You know, say big biblical Hebrew, where the, the, the total library of texts we have is so small, you know, compared to a language like Spanish. Um, yeah. That it's, it, yeah, you keep running into these um, hapax legomena, these these words that only occur once in the entire body of Hebrew literature. Uh, and then you're kind of up against a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you get these people with the, the, the tools of literature and they come in and their whole project is showing how a text is really cool and is doing neat things. And for a couple of decades, that was that was great. But that that didn't so much fizzle out as I think the the, the, the pious people who had gotten into it, the people with sort of you know, Catholic instincts and Christian instincts were starting to feel that even narrative criticism didn't fulfill all their desires. And so right around the time I showed up, there was a, a, a people started talking about theological exegesis and they started talking about rec- going back to the church fathers and reclaiming what they did. And of course for the church fathers, Biblical interpretation and theology are just the same activity. People were just fascinated by the idea of recovering what the church fathers used to do. And um, that that approach of recovering what the fathers used to do didn't really characterize any of my coursework because this is sort of the newest rising tr- uh, fashion. But when I got to my dissertation project, I decided that uh, I wanted to learn from a master. So I was going to sort of build a course for myself. So I chose St. Matthew the evangelist, uh, as, as my, my guru, my master, because Matthew is famous for what they call his formula citations. These, these places where he drops the subtlety and just hits you between the eyes says this thing happened in Christ's life in order to fulfill this text from the old Testament. Um, yeah. And we should say that your dissertation is called Matthew's vision, the formula citations in Matthew 1, 1 through 4, 16. So four chapters. Yeah, you know, that's, that, that cuts it down from 21 formula citations to seven. To seven, okay. And, you know, the, there have been endless studies done of the, 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 the formula citations. Um, I, I was coming to them um, in part to get, you know, to get the dissertation and get my doctoral degree. As you understand that, right? Uh, right. You got to get the project done. But also and, and foremost, I wanted to know, okay, okay, Matthew, tell me, how yeah. do you interpret scripture? Show me what, what it is. What, what is this that you do? Uh, and I got, got to spend a delightful year uh, learning from, from, uh, from the man, I thought. Um, you know, what is and up? so he would say like, oh, as it says in Ezekiel or as it says in Isaiah, and then he would say, this is what that is. Is that what, do I got that right? That's right. Yeah. So he says, uh, you know, um, so, uh, we, we have, um, Joseph's dream in which the angel tells him to take Mary in. And so he does. And Mary gives birth uh, to Jesus. And he says, this happened to fulfill what was said by Isaiah, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear it. Right. So, and um, now, oh boy, in the mainstream literature on Matthew's interpretation of scripture, I, the um, not not everyone, but the great majority agreed that what Matthew does is rip texts out of context. Um, my my favorite, you know, academic article I found was titled "Matthew Twists the Scriptures." Um, wow! So, 
Okay, uh, but uh, so, so I'm a totally out of the, you know, I don't know the, the, the esoteric academic view. And I've always thought like, oh, we're supposed to understand that Matthew is speaking to the, to the Jews of the time. And so he's saying, look at these boxes that we have checked. He shall be called, uh, you know, he is from Nazareth or he is from Bethlehem or he had to go to Egypt to come out of Egypt. And like, I'm checking these boxes so you guys can believe that this is the real deal. But, but you're saying those boxes are just sort of made up. Well, the, the, the um, I think that the, the majority view among academics, um, not my view, but the, the majority view is, is that uh, Matthew is, as you say, uh, quoting scripture for apologetic purposes in, in order to provide reassurance to Jewish Christians um, to convince people that Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah. Um, but they simultaneously hold that he's wrenching texts out of context. And as you, as you're pointing out, I think there's a tension between those two ideas. How convincing can it really be, uh, if he's abusing the scriptures? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, um, so, you know, the, the, the minority view, um, okay. I say minority. I found one scholar who said this, um, (laughs) that, that, uh, that, he's not attempting apologetics at all. He's talking to people who already believe. Um, and yeah. Okay. And, you know, it, it seems to me that a great clue to what Matthew was up to, um, can, comes in a couple of these citations where the idea that he's wrenching it out of context kind of goes too far, even for people who think he does that. Right. Because, you know, he says, um, when, when, uh, when Jesus ends up, he flees into Egypt and then he's going to come back. And and Matthew says, this happened to fulfill what was said in scripture. He's in the sites, Hosea out of Egypt, I have called my son. But when you go back and look at Hosea, that line is not even a prophecy. Hosea is is not saying what's going to happen in the future. He's describing a past event. Hosea is, is describing the fact that Israel prior to Hosea's time came out of Egypt. Um, and, and so that that sort of brings biblical interpreters up short and they say, what is Matthew up to here? And what they conclude, I think, is pretty reasonable that when you look uh, look ahead in the text to, say, the scene of Christ being tempted in the wilderness, it's fairly clear there that Matthew is, is putting Jesus forward as someone who embodies Israel and he's reenacting Israel's time in the wilderness. Um, and so if you come back to the citation of, of, of for Hosea, um, most scholars will say that Matthew is interpreting this text typologically. He's saying that um, the past exodus from Egypt points forward as a shadow or an image of Christ. Uh, and... Um, and so, so they they actually don't think that Matthew is interpreting Hosea as prophesying in a line where he's clearly not. They they think that he's he's grabbed this line from Hosea as a way of expressing a typology about Jesus. Jesus is Israel, and so when Jesus comes out of Egypt, he's kind of reliving Israel's exodus from Egypt. Yeah. Um, and there's there's another citation like that where where you know, he cites Jeremiah. Um, uh, regarding Rachel weeping for her sons uh, because they were no more after, you know, after Herod 
as the innocent slaughtered. And again, you go to the go to Jeremiah in context, and that's not a prophecy. It's a it's a statement about a past event. It's a statement about what happened when the the inhabitants of Judea of Judah, the, the southern kingdom, were deported to Babylon. Um, so again, they they say there, there's a typology going on here somehow that uh, Jesus's um, Jesus's flight into Egypt is somehow a replay of the exile of Judah into Babylon. That is uh, extremely interesting. And you can see how that would take you two directions. One, you might look at it kind of, as you said, as a literary scholar and say, oh, how clever he's being. But on the other hand, the way we often talk about the Bible, and I, I think correctly, is that it is the inspired and divine living word of God. And so everything that happens in it is a superb, supremely effective metaphor, but also literally true, or at least I think at least I think we think that you can correct me, but that yes, indeed th- these things happened, and yes, indeed they refer back to something and they enact something that that is also you know it's, it's more than historical. It's also uh, transcendentally. It sort of shakes you up right now, and you re- realize oh these things are are replaying in my life uh, even as they happened two thousand years ago. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Right. So 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 you know for me this was a um, a kind of electrifying moment to 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 read about Matthew doing this because um, the, the, the historical, the modern historical mindsets tends to see history as a, as a timeline. Mm-hmm. Right? There are events prior on the timeline and later on the timeline, but they, and they're, they're all very nice and distinct from each other, but it, it's clear that Matthew sees sees history differently. He, he thinks that one time can kind of be present in another time, right? So when Jesus is coming out of Egypt, we're kind of in the presence of the exodus out of Egypt again. Now, of course, this is just a Jewish mentality, right? Um, the, the, the rabbi Gamaliel is, is quoted as, as, uh, as having said, it, it's the duty of every Jew uh, on at the Passover to believe that he himself personally is coming out of Egypt to this day, right? That, that, um, okay. Yeah. You really do enter the the past is not a, a, a one dimensional or two dimensional uh, a line. It's this kind of cavernous reality that you can go enter into and participate in. And okay, so clearly, but, but 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 isn't it also true that that's the context that everybody in the very first one before even the Gentiles sort of got involved, like everybody has the shared context. So everybody knows everybody's Jewish and has that same point of view because they've all been to Passover since they were little kids. Right. You know, the, 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 the one, there's our two dimensional historical timeline view, I think really is distinctive of modernity. This is a, um, this came in the wake of, um, you know, late medieval nominalism, uh, and that, that in, uh, not just, you know, uh, the time of Christ, but as you say, prior to that, uh, after that, in the time of the, the great medieval scholars, it was intuitive to people that time is a kind of participation in God's eternity, that there's time is not only spread out, you know, so that everything separated in time is hopelessly apart from itself. It's also gathered together in the one eternal moment of eternity. And it's all of history is a kind of, um, uh, shadowing forth of, of, of God's, of God's existence. And, and so, and, and so the, the, the reality of eternity makes it possible for one 
area of time to contact and participate in another area of time. I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is this is just this is not even a thing to, that people would talk about. It was just so deeply in the back of their mind. It's uh, it's in our day when we were sort of on the other side of of the great philosophical divide that. Um, that we pay attention to it and think about it and wonder about the nature of history, which incidentally, I think is one of the fruits of modernity. I, I, I think that, that, um, the fact of the, uh, the great philosophical sea changes has made us pay attention to things that people didn't think to talk about before. They just assumed things. I think that makes perfect sense. You know, we're so linear. You and I are talking at 1 PM on Wednesday, June 14th, 2022, or whatever it is, June 15th. I don't know what day it is. But uh, like these days happen one at a time. There will never be another Wednesday, June 14th, June 15th. Sorry. There will never be another Wednesday, June 15th ever again, 2022. And yeah, each like, new moment in time arrives to completely abolish and destroy the moment before it. It's and gone. everything else can be ordered sequentially uh, leading up to it. And whereas before, at least certainly before we started keeping this calendar, you would just be, you know, in the year of Caesar Augustus, this one, and then in the year of Caesar so-and-so, in the year of King What's-His-Face, and then there'd be a new king and be a new year one and, and, and everything else. And there'd always be a new moon, there'd always be a new springtime. Everything was much more cyclical. Yeah, and you had um, what what I might call the mindset of tradition, Um that is, I think, I think in our linear experience, we tend to see ourselves, you know, so, so the metaphor could be we're on a boat, right? And uh, we have disembarked from the shore of the past. And as time goes on, we float further and further away from the shore, hmm. uh, you know? And so the our you know, Abraham or Christ himself or Thomas Aquinas, who, you name it, is, is always getting further and further away, um, harder and harder to know. Yeah. But I think that in all pre-modern times and really in all cultures, people had a mindset. The better metaphor would be you and I are walking on a path that is well-worn. Our ancestors, the word ancestors, it comes from antecessores, right? It's it's those who have gone before. The, mm -hmm. the, 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 the path of life that we're on has been trodden many times by all those before us. And we're following in their footsteps uh, and entering into what they have already done. Um, that is so interesting. That's a really good way to think about it. And what's uh, fascinating to me is just that this, this subtle background of how do you think about time enters deeply into how you think about scripture. And I'm convinced that it, that you have biblical scholars today reading Matthew who they have entirely unconsciously defaulted to a modern experience of time. And then when they read Matthew, that's why they see him as twisting the text. Yeah. Because he's operating within pre-modern instincts, not just about texts and not just about authorship, but pre-modern instincts just about time and history. And, uh, and this leads them to believe that Matthew twists the scriptures. Um, wow. That is a beautiful thesis. Um, I have a second question about Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the beginning, um, first Jesus is baptized as he is in the other Gospels by St. John and the Baptist, who says, why would you, you don't need to do this. I should be baptized by you. But he said, let me do this to fulfill, um, I think he says, righteousness. And then later he goes into the desert to be, to be tempted. Now, both of these things are not necessary for the, for somebody who is the son of God and is without sin. Uh, why is he, do, why is he doing these things? 
Yeah, and of course, it's Matthew who calls attention to that question, right? That's Matthew who who uh, gives us the little dialogue between John and Jesus, where John says, "This is pretty awkward for me." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and Jesus says, "No, you have to do this," uh, as, yeah. you, as you pointed out. Um, yeah, so. So, you know, we, just a minute ago, we were talking about how Matthew shows us uh, Jesus as, in a very real way, embodying Israel. This is, for Matthew, this is not a metaphor. This is very real, that, that somehow Israel and all of Israel's history is gathered together in Jesus. Um, and this is why, for example, you have Jesus... He went after he's born, then he goes into Egypt, as Israel did. He comes out of Egypt, as Israel did. He crosses through the waters of his baptism, as Israel did. He heads out into the wilderness, as Israel did. And then what does he do next? He goes up on a mountain and gives a law, just you know, just like Moses at that point in the story, right? He, he shows us Jesus gathering together all the past, but he's doing this as a way of looking forward, right? That... Um, it, there's a really fascinating moment wow. in, 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 in this typological narrative where there's a sudden discrepancy between Jesus and the story, right? Because um, he, at the point where Herod sins and has the infants killed, uh, Matthew cites this text, this, you know, the, the, um, about Rachel weeping for her children for they were no more. And in context, that text from Jeremiah is talking about the Babylonian exile. And so we have Jesus here, uh, kind of reliving the moment of the exile. And you can see how Matthew there is playing on, on how the prophets describe the Babylonian exile in terms of the bondage in Egypt. So Jesus is heading off into Egypt as he replays the Babylonian exile. But but there's this really, there's this really awkward thing about the moment in the story because Jesus lives and all these other infants died, right? And so the text, yeah. the text that says, you know, and the, the, for, you know, Rachel weeping for her children for they are no more is using a metaphor of death to talk about exile. Jesus goes into exile like the text is talking about. But these other kids, they literally die. And it's this, you know, it, it's this odd moment where the Messiah has an escape plan, you know, and his yeah. subjects suffer for him. And it would be absolutely horrible if you if we didn't realize that that's for now. This is all pointing forward in the text to where Jesus will join them in death, right? If you if you read to the the, the, the very next line after the one that Matthew cites, the, the very next Jer- Jeremiah he cites uh, thirty one fifteen. If you write, read thirty one sixteen, the next line is "Weep no more, your children they, they will return," right? And uh, mm-hmm. and that's what Jesus will accomplish later in the story. So. The, 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 the slaying of the infants happens after Herod, this king, gathers about him the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, the next time we're going to see a king and scribes and Pharisees all gathered together is going to be at the death of Jesus. So this whole typological story is, is also is pointing forward. So it's not just gathering up the past and embodying all of that. It's also looking ahead. Looking ahead not only to to the rest of the story of the gospel. But I think this is kind of what you're, you're driving at looking ahead to us, to you and to me. Right. So, you know, imagine being a member of the original audience of Matthew's gospel uh, and you're hearing or reading this passage about the baptism of Jesus. And when you read about Jesus going down into the water and the spirit descending 
yeah, you're, you're this adult who just recently did that, right? You, you recently went down into the water with the assurance that the spirit is going to descend on you. You cannot help but see yourself in that scene. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus, is, Jesus is not only fulfilling the past, he's creating the template for the future. He's become what you might call um, the ultimate man, right? He, he's like the platonic ideal of the man, right? He is now the Christ and all Christians, you know, uh, sort of lowercase c now, are going to be Christians by entering into the thing he has already established. So, you know, as he gathered up the times before him. So what we do as Christians is we go back and enter into the events of his life. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's more than fantastic. That's, that's miraculous. And I, I, I'm thinking of the Eucharist is like that too, right? Remember, remember, right. That what to, to remember, like it means when I say remember, it means like think back to something that happened, but remember literally means to rejoin, to put, you know, like dismember, remember. I don't know what it would be in Greek, but, but in Latin, it really means to like get back together with the thing that was. Yes. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. And, 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 and so our conversation about time as you're, you're, you're spot on that, that, that quickly becomes a conversation about memory and what memory is and what memory means. And so do this in memory of me, um, is very easy to hear through a modern filter that was not intended by Christ. Uh, and, yeah. And, so, okay. Can I ask you then about your book, Cur Deus Verba, which uses the theology of the, of the scripture from the question, what did God seek to accomplish? Because God is the living word and everything we do, even uh, just me and you talking so far apart simultaneously through words, we were weaving this thing together. Everything we do is, is speaking. Uh, like so miraculous is the, the, this writing of St. Matthew that clearly it had to be the Holy Spirit to achieve all of those things you just described. And I've read it, I don't know how many times, but I'd never thought of it. I never thought of it. I'm so glad to hear you, you lay it out like that. What did you say in your book about all this? You know, um, I, I do spend a fair bit of time in the book um, trying to clear ground and have some of the same conversation we've just been having about um, fundamentally different assumptions regarding time, eternity, history, memory, and uh you know, if you, if you, if you don't, if you don't have a basically, you know, I, I think that the, the, the technical term might be participatory view of philosophy, the idea that um, there's a hierarchy of being with, with lower levels of being sharing somehow in the higher levels of being so that everything is ultimately some kind of sharing in the existence of God, you know, a dim reflection of it. If you don't have that image, then grasping salvation history, grasping the incarnation, uh, it, it's, it, it's going to become impossible. And um, the, the basic tack that I take in the book is, um, uh, as the title would indicate, I kind of borrowed from St. Anselm. You know, he, his famous book is, you know, um, um, Cur Deus Homo, Why Did God Become Man? And he lets that ah, okay. drive a series of arguments to illuminate the incarnation. And, um, but, but I'm also taking a, a lead from St. Augustine in his little book on Christian doctrine, where I was just, I remember as an undergraduate reading his book, I was just so impressed by the, the stupid level questions Augustine thought to ask. And he asked <laughs> questions about things that I had, I had just run right past them without thinking. And one of the questions he asked was, why are there some passages in scripture that are difficult to understand? 
right? If you think about it, you have an omnipotent author, mm -hmm. an omniscient author, an author who actually knows where you will be sitting and what you will be thinking and, you know, what you'll be digesting, you know, as you sit down to read this book. And um, why would he not create a text where light just pours off of it. It's this one, it's just uninterrupted stream of illumination. Why, why instead do we have scripture, this kind of dark forest with, you know, various pathways leading through murky areas and, and you know, little, sometimes you get to a, 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 a little rise, you come to the top of a hill and you can see a little further. Right. But there's, you know, why, why do you have yeah. the book of Proverbs, you know, with something like, the horse leech has three daughters and they all cry, give, give. And you think, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, can the omnipotent, omniscient author not do better than this? And what Augustine says, I just think is profound. He says, um, it's to make us humble. It's to make us docile, right? And generalizing his answer, you could say, Scripture is, does not only exist to impart information to us and to illuminate our intellects. Scripture exists to reshape us and to make us Christians. Mm -hmm. And sometimes reshaping people is best done by enlightening their minds. But sometimes the best thing to reshape people is something else. And so this is, what, this is the fundamental reason there are difficulties in Scripture. I, I was blown away by that insight. I, I just thought... You know, for, for to begin with, Saint Augustine is an absolute master, but but also it it began to highlight for me the power of thinking about what is the ultimate reason that God made the Bible. That is such a great uh, puzzle. It was just to give us knowledge of our faith, and and but no, there's there's something deeper going on. Yeah, well, and also like you learn better if you have to work it out on your own than if somebody just gives you here are all the answers. And you haven't really done anything with it and you haven't really made it your own. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that's something that Augustine also meditates on. You know, it's, it's maybe it's something perverse about us, but it's absolutely true that, that if, if we get something easily, we tend not to value it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and so, so ultimately uh, I think that we have to return to that participatory mindset to, to think about the, the purpose of scripture that, uh, you know, you, you had put your finger right on it a minute ago saying that, you know, Christ is the word, right? And here scripture is many words, which is somehow also the word. Um, and so in, I, I think the end game with understanding scripture is to begin to glimpse that all of scripture is somehow uh, an incarnational reality. Somehow the word of God, the second person of the Trinity exists in some mode there. And so the ultimate purpose of scripture is so that we can impress Christ, that second person of the Trinity onto our hearts that by, by having scripture sink in and, and sort of, you know, if, as you go over it and over it, I think I always think of Psalm one, blessed is he, you know, the, the blessing is pronounced, the pronounced on the one who meditates on the law of the Lord. And the Hebrew word there means murmurs, right? That he's, huh. con he's constantly murmuring to himself the words of the law uh, and, and of the Psalter so that even into, into his muscle memory, right? You know, and, yes. you know, so someone like St. Augustine had scripture by memory, you know, um, when, when Aquinas was imprisoned by his family for a couple of years, um, he just took that time just to memorize the whole Bible. You know, as recent, my, my father has memories when he was a child. There were preachers wandering the South who had the entire Bible memorized word for word. And, 
this this used to be a a um, uh, more of a reality that memory was important to people, and so this idea that scripture sinks and soaks into you, and as it does so, Christ is impressed on the heart, right? Uh, I think that's that's finally the purpose, uh, yeah, yeah. and 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 the 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 book is a long argument to show how that explains a great deal about scripture. Yeah. And then to the, I think I had one where the first Psalm had ruminate for that, for that verb and ruminate is to chew. So the. Yes. A, a, a favorite uh, image of, of the medieval monks, right? The, the idea that you, that when you ruminate, you, you, um, you, ch- you eat something, it goes down into the stomach and then it comes back up and you re-chew it. <laughs> then you see it goes back down into another stomach. This idea that that one text of scripture comes back up again and again, you chew it over again and get even more out of it and then swallow again. Yeah. That's kind of gross and kind of cool. Yeah, um, right. Exactly, exactly at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, Jeremy Holmes, thank you very much for explaining uh, th- these topics and for joining us today. Would you like to say a blessing for our listeners and their families in our world? Yes, I would. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Our Father in heaven, uh, through the intercession of St. Matthew, we ask that your Holy Spirit will descend on us here talking and on all those who listen to this podcast and impress Christ on their hearts. Enable us to, to enter into the events of Christ's life and to be remade uh, as, as the new creation, uh, ready for the coming of your son at the end of time. And we pray that uh, as this happens, uh, you will not only illuminate our minds, uh, but also uh, change our background assumptions, pr- change our feelings, uh, completely remake us in the image of your son. And we ask this in his name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Christodinians and Jeremy Holmes recorded this conversation on June 15th, the feast of St. Vitus of Sicily. Also, the feast of Saint Germain Cousin, who really had the original wicked stepmother, yet remained loving, selfless, and pious in everything she did. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. And our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window at Santo Domingo de Silos near Burgos in Spain, and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website www.english.op.org I'm Chris Odinitz Please email me with comments and questions ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com I thank you very much for listening and I'll talk to you soon This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds God